There may not be a greater privilege in all the world than to be adopted into God's family. And yet, this is precisely what God has done for us by sending His Son, who was fully God and fully man, to redeem us through the cross. In this message from Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 through chapter 4, verse 7, David Platt points us to the amazing reality of our spiritual adoption into God's family through Jesus Christ. God not only adopts us through His Son, He also sends the Spirit of His Son into our hearts. As former rebels deserving of God's wrath, those who are in Christ now have the privilege of calling God our Father. This is the Radical with David Platt podcast. Here is David with a message titled, Free as Sons. Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you do, let me invite you to open with me to Galatians chapter 3. Let me invite you to pull out the notes you received in the worship guide you received when you came in. I want us to look at a picture of adoption in Scripture today. Adoption is a process that is familiar to many people in this room. We have families right now who are in the middle of that process. Uh, Many of you know Randy and Valerie Hall are in Ukraine right now adopting four children and another one hopefully next year to bring their sum total to 10 children in the Hall family. And um, I know the Underwoods are in the middle of the adoption process, waiting to travel back. Nichols have their travel date for January and a variety of other families across this room that are at different points in that process. There really is just a, an adoptive culture here at Brook Hills, which I think is, it's not only a good thing, I think it's necessitated by the New Testament. The church, I'm not saying that every family, every Christian family should or must adopt, but the reality is if we are following this book, we will be an adopting people who nurture an adopting atmosphere because it's what the gospel is all about. I remember when Heather and I first came here, we were just, I was filling in preaching and we we didn't run in a lot of circles where adoption was very common, and so we thought we were kind of anomaly. Uh, when we came to Brook Hills and we first started telling a couple of folks that we were in the process of adoption, and the first question we would always get asked was, well, how many? And it's like, how many? What do you mean? Like, we're just adopting one child. And they said, oh, just one? Uh, <laughs> yeah, and we found out uh, apparently that's just, that's just kind of bottom of the rung, so to speak, Brook Hills. So it's a good thing. And there's a lot of interesting things about the adoption process, a lot of challenging things about the adoption process. And those of you who have been through that process know that one of the greatest challenges probably comes in listening to other people talk about adoption. And there's some phrases that just get under your skin when you're going through that process. And and these are not in your notes, but you might even turn on the back. And I want to give you just a couple of phrases not to, you can write these down. I mean, I meant that a bit facetiously, but these are phrases I would encourage you to not share with an adoptive parent, okay? Uh, First, I remember, now obviously when we adopted uh, Caleb from Kazakhstan, this was close to two years ago now, um, A lot of people around here, especially in the church, knew our story, but there's certainly different places where people haven't known our story, and so we've had an opportunity to tell a story about Caleb and how we had adopted him, and sometimes people will will hear that story, and they'll look back and say, that is so nice. Now, do you have any children of your own, too? Okay. Phrase number one, not to say to an adoptive parent, do you have any children of your own? It's when you put your arm around this person, you kind of bring them in and say, I've got a secret for you. He's 
ours. Like, he's our own child. It's not, oh, we have this child and then our own children over here, our own children. When we got back and Heather got pregnant with Joshua and people would say, wow, that's great. You have an adopted child and now you're going to have one of your own. No, 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 no. Like, we have this, this tendency to divide children, to distinguish children between, well, there's adopted children, there's biological children, as if adopted is some adjective to describe a child. It's not an adjective. It's an action that was taking place. You adopt someone, and now they're not an adopted child. They're a child, period. They're your child. Not your adopted, your biological, they're your child, period. I'm going to get a little riled up on a couple of these, okay? Uh, as you, you can tell, you're like, okay, we get the point. We get the point. But, all right, that's one. Uh, I remember uh, another conversation. This was before we were traveling to Kazakhstan, and we were telling some folks, uh, you know, we're going to adopt a child from Kazakhstan. And the response, no lie, that came back, surprise look on this one particular uh, lady's face. Um, we're going to adopt a child from Kazakhstan. She looked back and she said, a real one? No, a, a, a plastic one that we can put on our mantle and look at all day. Yes, a real child. Like, what else do you... Yes, the real. So, okay. Now, don't go there. So, don't... Okay, no. Ask if they're real. Uh, don't go there. Um, another one that uh, was common that, uh, to be honest, I, I probably even said before we went through the adoption process, and I know I at least thought it, um, a lot of times people will say, well, we, we like the idea of adoption, but first we'd like to have children of our own. Or, well, we like our first baby or our first children to be ours, and then we'll have adopted children. And again, you, you hear kind of the language from that, that first phrase. We have this mentality that adoption is almost a consolation prize for those who cannot have children of their own. And... Again, I'm particularly sensitive to this because I think that was part of my thinking. And the reality is adoption is no consolation prize for parents who cannot have children of their own so they go second best and have an adopted child. No, not at all. In fact, adoption is best, just like biological birth is best. These are processes whereby someone becomes a child, period. And there's no distinction in that sense. Even even sometimes when people say, well, I just don't know if I can love an adopted child as much as I love a biological child. Again, you see that distinction that's coming in, and the reality is a child is loved. We, we can definitely say from having been through a process of adoption and a process of biological birth, there is absolutely no difference in the wonder of the affection that is felt for children, period, period. Sometimes people will say, this is, a, this is another big one. Uh, sometimes people will say, well, have you ever met Caleb's real mother? Okay, let me introduce you to her. Her name is Heather. <laughs> and they say, well, you know what I mean. Okay, what do you mean? That she's like, Heather's her fake mother, and there's a real mother out there, and I start going off on defending my wife. So anyway, so I would encourage you not to ask about real mother. Uh, another one, I would encourage you not to go, go here because, uh, well, the thought or the question that comes up, oh, he's adopted. How much did he cost? Okay. All right, now we're about to, we're about to take the gloves off now. Uh, <laughs> as if you can put a price tag on a child, and especially in light of all that we spend our money on. But anyway, no, you don't go there. We, um, 
Another, another thought, we've uh, had people ask us, well, obviously he doesn't know much about his family heritage, or are you going to teach him about his cultural heritage? People are surprised when Heather and I will respond to that. Actually, Caleb does know a lot about his family heritage. He knows all about his granddad, who he didn't have the opportunity to meet, but he has all kinds of pictures and videos. His favorite video is the grandpa video. He knows his other granddad very well, his two grandmoms, his aunts, his uncles, his cousins, his great aunts, his great uncles. Caleb has more family heritage than he knows what to do with. And not just family heritage, we're very intentional about teaching his cultural heritage. He is familiar with cultural literature like Mr. Brown Can Moo, Can You, and uh, <laughs> Good Night Moon, and he runs around the house saying, run, run, fast as you can, you can't catch me, I'm the... Ah, you have the same heritage that Caleb does. This is odd. He knows all about his culture's foods, like barbecue and mac and cheese and watermelon and birthday cake. He's very familiar with cultural music. He, he probably can't identify a Kazakh song right now, but he knows the Brook Hills worship CD backwards and forwards. And he may not yet know the Kazakh national anthem, but he has heard Sweet Home Alabama. So... <laughs> So you're clapping like, yeah, that's our national anthem, yes. <laughs> you say, well, don't you want to teach him about his heritage? And the very question implies that his heritage is thousands of miles away, but his heritage is here. Now, I, I want to be careful here. I'm not saying that Kazakhstan is not important in his life or, or in any child who has been adopted from another country, especially if adopted later on in life and has spent a lot of time and had much experience in that country. But the reality is when Caleb came into our family, he was all Platt, not partly a part of the Platt family. He was all a part of the Platt family, and his heritage is as a son of David and Heather Platt. And this is where we realize some of these phrases that I would encourage you to avoid are really not as much just phrases that frustrate adoptive parents. In a deeper way, they actually demonstrate an underlying, I'm convinced, an underlying deficiency when it comes to our understanding of Christianity, especially this distinction between biological child or adopted child. We have such a hard time thinking of a child if flesh and blood are not involved. And if that's the case, then we will have a very, very difficult time understanding the gospel, a story that tells about a spiritual transracial adoption that takes place in each one of our lives. And that's what I want us to dive into today. I want us to consider what it means to be adopted into the family of God. So, you've gotten your notes there. A recap at the very beginning of what we've been studying in Galatians up to this point. We've been three weeks to three chapters and flying through these. I want to remind you an overview of what we've seen about salvation in Galatians. One statement that really sums it all up. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. That statement sums up what we've seen in Galatians. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. Grace alone, we saw in Galatians chapter 1. Remember the truth that we saw there. God's pleasure in you is not based on your performance for Him. God's pleasure in us is not based on our performance for Him. This is huge. God's pleasure in us is not based on our performance for Him. It's by grace 
alone. And we saw in Galatians 2, it's saved by grace alone through faith alone. And instead of God's pleasure in us being based on our performance before him, God's pleasure in us is based on whose performance? Christ's performance for us and in us. This is the beauty of faith, that we trust in Christ. We've been crucified with Christ. We no longer live, but Christ lives in us. The life we live, we live by what? Faith, Galatians 2.20. Faith in the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us. And so we avoid legalism in Galatians chapter 1, thinking that we can perform for God. We avoid hypocrisy in Galatians chapter 2, living lines that are out of step with the truth of the gospel. And they come together in Galatians 3 in Christ alone. We looked last week at 2,000 years of history, Old Testament history from Abraham to Moses to Christ and how, how Christ fulfilled the law of Moses and completed the promise to Abraham and everything, not just biblical history, but all of history revolves around Christ. He is supreme. He is supreme as our righteousness and our joy and our hope and our strength and our life. He is everything to us at every moment. He is our life. He's our everything. So that's what we've seen up to this point, salvation in Galatians. Now there has been one doctrine that has risen to the top, and it's the doctrine of justification. And we define justification as the gracious act of God by which God declares a sinner righteous solely based on faith in Jesus Christ. And what we said was, we looked at Galatians 2 and we said, every follower of Christ needs a firm grasp on justification. Luther said it's the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. Calvin said it's the hinge upon which everything in Christianity turns. This is huge. This idea, and you've got this in your notes, the doctrine of justification, the idea that we are right before God the judge. We're right before God the judge. That God has declared us righteous before him. That our righteousness is not earned. Your righteousness before God is not based on how well your week goes. How much you pray this week. How much you study the word this week. What you do this week. You're not trying to earn righteousness on a daily basis. Your righteousness is based completely on the righteousness of Christ in heaven. And God looks at you through the lens of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This is an amazing truth. That God, a holy God, looks at us in our sin and pronounces not guilty. Not guilty. But as amazing as that truth is, that we are right before God the judge. Justification. I want to submit to you this morning that there is an even higher truth in the gospel than that. An even greater truth in the gospel than that. And I want to draw on a friend of mine named J.I. Packer. I say friend of mine, I've never met him, but I feel like I know J.I. Packer really well because of this one particular book called Knowing God. I would highly recommend every follower of Christ in this room to read Knowing God by J.I. Packer. I'll put it on my top five of books that I would recommend anyone read. It's a book that I reread continually all throughout the year, every year. It is an incredible book about theology of who God is as it applies to the way we live every day. And there is a chapter that he has near the end of that book on adoption, sons of God. And I want to bring him in because he's got a lot more theological credibility than I do. And I want you to listen to what he says. I think what he says can't be summed up any better. He writes, Packer writes, adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. This may cause raising of eyebrows, for justification is the gift of God on which since Luther, evangelicals have laid the greatest stress. And we are accustomed to say, almost without thinking, that free justification is God's supreme blessing to us sinners. 
Nonetheless, careful thought will show the truth of the statement I've just made. Listen to what he says. The justification by which we mean God's forgiveness of the past together with his acceptance for the future is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel is not in question. So he's saying justification is primary, fundamental. Justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need. We all stand by nature under God's judgment. His law convicts us. Guilt gnaws at us, making us restless, miserable, and in our lucid moments, afraid. We have no peace in ourselves because we have no peace with our maker. So we need the forgiveness of our sins and assurance of a restored relationship with God more than we need anything else in the world. And this the gospel offers us before it offers us anything else. So he says, justification, that's primary. That's where this picture starts, fundamental. But then he says, this is not to say that justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. And that's where Packer writes, adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. Here's where I want you to think with me about the distinction between justification and adoption. Not that they're completely separated. They build on one another. But in justification, we are declared right before God the judge. And you've got this in your notes. In adoption, the truth that we see is that we are loved by God the Father. And that truth is so supremely high and supremely wonderful. It's good to be declared right before a judge. It's something even greater to be loved by God the Father. I would illustrate it this way. If you could imagine standing before a judge, knowing that you were guilty, and that judge declaring you like he does every single one of us through faith in Christ, not guilty. But that's not all he does. The judge does not sit there on the bench, declare not guilty, and move on to the next case. Instead, this judge gets up off the bench. He comes around to where you are. He personally takes your chains off himself, and he takes your hand and says, come home with me into my family as my son. That's good. This is what the God of the universe does in adoption. He declares us right in justification. He declares us loved as a son in adoption. And that's what I want us to dive into and see in Galatians chapter 3 and 4. What does it mean to have God as Father? I'll pull in Packer one more time. Packer writes, what is a Christian? Now think about that question. How would you respond if you were asked, what is a Christian? What's your explanation? What is a Christian? How would you answer that? And Packer writes, the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God as Father. He continues, if you want to know how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his Father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. I want us to be a people whose prayers and whose worship and whose outlook on life is 
prompted and controlled by the fact that we are children and God is our Father. I want that to be evident on our countenances as we sing and as we leave this place and we live in this culture that we have God as our Father. So let's dive in. Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. We're going to read it in the beginning of chapter 4 and see a picture of God as our adoptive Father. Look at what it says in verse 26. Paul writes, You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. That sentence right there sums up everything we've seen and we'll see today in the book of Galatians. If that verse is not underlined in your Bible, let me encourage you to underline it. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. What I'm saying is that as long as the heir is a child, he's no different from a slave, although he owns the whole estate. He is subject to guardians and trustees until the time set by his father. So also when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to redeem those under law, that we might receive the full rights of sons. Because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And since you are a son, God has made you also an heir. You're sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus, Galatians 3, 26. Now, I want to point out something real quick before we dive into this picture in this text. What you'll notice is that the New Testament does not describe us here as sons and daughters of God. It doesn't describe us even as more gender-neutral children of God. Instead, this text... Now, we see ourselves described as children of God in other places in the New Testament, but this text is simply talking about sons, specifically talking about sons. And there's a reason behind that, and it's not because the New Testament is chauvinistic. The reason is because in first century culture, as as is common in many cultures, who would receive the inheritance in a family, a son or a daughter? A son. Picture we saw last week from Abraham to Moses to Christ in this line It was carried through by an heir, Abraham's son Isaac, son Jacob, and continuing on. And so when we get to this passage and Paul's talking about adoption as sons, he's talking about receiving an inheritance, which we're going to talk about later, that would be reserved for a son. And what he's saying, and even in verse 28 where he talks about Jew and Greek, slave and free, male and female, he's saying it doesn't matter what your gender is, your socioeconomic status is, or your ethnic identity is, you are in Christ a son. You receive an inheritance. So actually, as opposed to being chauvinistic, New Testament has actually been pretty countercultural here because it's saying that every follower of Christ who is female, daughter so to speak, actually has the rights and privileges of a son, that we're all together in this thing. And so what you'll see is even Paul contrasting, when you get to chapter 4, you'll see him contrasting children and sons. And the background there is, and scholars debate whether or not Paul's really addressing Greek backgrounds or Roman backgrounds or Jewish backgrounds, but in all three of those, Greek culture, Jewish culture, Roman culture, you had a, a period as a child 
where you were, just like it says in verse 1, you were like a slave or a servant in your household where you had guardians and trustees that watched over you, but there came a point when you became a son, when you had the full rights and privileges and responsibilities of a son. And that's the transition point that Paul's talking about referring to as adoption, when you receive the full rights of sons. So with that background, what I want to do is I want to show you two simple, glorious actions that God takes to become our adoptive father. This is not something that it's just automatic, that we're just universally sons of God. This is a privilege that we enter into because of these two actions. Number one, God sent his son so that we might receive the position of sons. Two actions he takes. First action is he sends his son. He sent his son so that we might receive the position of sons. This is chapter 4, verse 4. When the time had fully come, God sent his son. You get on later, it says, so we might receive the full rights of sons. Some translations, ESV says that we might be received as adopted sons. The picture is adoption, to be placed in a position of sonship. And this is what God did. By sending his son, he gave us the position of sons. Now, it begs the question, how can God sending Jesus, this is a great Christmas text, how can God sending Jesus, what we celebrate this week, how does that make it possible for you or I to be sons of God? What is so unique or so significant about God sending Jesus that would make it possible for any sinner in this room who trusts in Jesus to be a son of God, to have all the inheritance that God gives his son passed on to them? How does that happen? And here's where I want to use kind of a contemporary illustration, picture of adoption and the adoption process to help illustrate what's going on here. Those of you who've been through the adoption process know that it's not quite as simple as a process as you would like it to be. There's all kinds of things that have to come together in order to make an adoption happen. You'd think it would be as simple as we have a, an orphan child here, you have a willing parent here, let's put them together and make this happen. It just doesn't work quite that easily. There's a lot of different things that have to happen. Think about it in light of this text. First of all, adoption requires someone that comes at the right time. Someone that comes at the right time. The adoption process, contemporary illustration, and we'll dive into the text. It's just not that simple. There are so many different hoops that have to be jumped to, through, boxes that have to be checked off. There's a lot of waiting. There's a lot of working. All of this timing. For us, there's about a 14-month process. Some have shorter processes. Some have longer processes. But there's a time that all leads up to that moment when a judge declares this child to be a, a son or daughter in a family. It's exactly what Paul's talking about here. He says, when the time had fully come, when everything came together at a point in time for this to happen, this is where this Christmas text just comes alive because it's not just about celebrating what happened 2,000 years ago. It's about realizing why it happened exactly 2,000 years ago. Why did Christmas happen when Christmas happened? Well, for a variety of different reasons that are highlighted here in Galatians. Number one, it was the right time theologically. It's what we saw last week. The Old Testament law had pointed us over and over again to our need for Christ. 300 prophecies in the Old Testament, all of these shadows that pointing to one substance in Christ. And so all of this had happened. There's a reason it didn't happen 500 years. Christ didn't come 500 years before or 500 years later. It was the right time theologically. Second, it was the right time religiously. 
There was spiritual hunger, not just among the Jewish people, but you look at first century culture and you look at Roman paganism and Roman idolatry and the spiritual hunger that was created as a result of that. And you see, this was the right time, not just theologically for Old Testament Jews, but religiously for the people who lived in the first century culture. Third, it was the right time culturally. The Greek language was common among people. It was the universal language of the people that made it possible for a message to be distributed to masses of people through one language. It was the right time theologically, religiously, politically, and culturally, and politically. Politically, you had the Pax Romana, which was the peace of Rome. Fancy term that basically describes how Rome had subdued all kinds of different nations and in the process had created an intricate system of roads for travels, travel and commerce to take place. And so what you had was all of these factors coming together in this moment on the landscape of human history. Now, don't miss it. This is not God sitting up in heaven thinking, hmm, I, this factor seems to be coming together and look what's happening here and look what's happening here. Let's, maybe this would be a good time to send my son. No, what, what's going on is the sovereign God of the universe who before the creation of the world determined what would happen in sending his son has brought all of these things together for that point. And if I could just say, this is just a complete side note, but it's worth saying, there is a, an appointed time when he is coming back. That's good news. Christmas. He came once. Let's remember he's coming again. And God in his sovereign grace has set a time when it's going to happen. It could be this afternoon. You may not even make lunch. Just stop looking at your watch, you know? He could be coming. So anyway, that's, that's good news. Side point, we got plenty to cover in this text. Right time, theologically, Religiously, politically, culturally. Adoption requires someone who comes at the right time. Second, adoption requires someone who comes, who possesses the right qualifications. Right qualifications. Contemporary illustration of adoption. Heather and I started looking about where do we adopt from? We started looking at countries and we couldn't adopt from this country because we were too young or couldn't adopt from this country because this or that. And we couldn't adopt for a while from any country because we didn't have a, a house because ours had gone under in Katrina. I mean, who came up with the idea that you have to have a home to put a child in? But that's, they're stringent on some of these things. And so you got you to check off all these boxes. And so you start going through this process where you show you got the right qualifications. So what does Jesus bring to the table that Muhammad doesn't? What does Jesus bring to the table that the Buddha doesn't? What does Jesus bring to the table that this teacher or that teacher in the landscape of human history does not bring to the table? And this is where Galatians 4.4 is just a theologically loaded verse. What does he bring to the table? First qualification, he is fully divine. Jesus is fully divine. When the time had fully come, God sent his son, not created his son, God sent his son, his pre-existent son. Colossians 1.15, the image of the invisible God. Philippians 2, 5, and 6, in very nature God. Hebrews chapter 1, the exact representation of his being. God did not send a divine surrogate on his behalf. He came himself. God sent his son, fully divine. Not just fully divine, though, but fully human. Second qualification, he is fully human. Sent his son, born of a woman. Same thing, Philippians 2 continues, being in very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped and made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in what? Human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, fully human, born the natural way, in soiled swaddling clothes, 
Just like any other poor peasant in Palestine would have been born. That's where I love what Luther said. Luther said, Christianity does not begin at the top as all other religions do. It begins at the bottom. You must run directly to a manger and a mother's womb. Embrace this infant and virgin's child in your arms and look at him. Let's not forget even this week that amidst all the story about the circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth, what's most significant about Christmas is not found in the circumstances surrounding the birth. It's found in the identity of the baby there in that manger, fully divine, fully human, and fully righteous. Third qualification. Sent his son, born of a woman, born under law. Not just born a man, born a Jewish man. Under Jewish law. Would go be raised in a Jewish family and go to Jewish synagogue and who would know the law of God, not only know it, but faithfully, perfectly fulfill it. This is what we've talked about. The only way that Jesus can die for those who are unrighteous is if he has perfect what? Righteousness. He has to be perfectly righteous. These are his qualifications. Fully divine, fully human, and fully righteous. Adoption requires someone at the right time with the right qualifications. And third, someone who has the right resolve. You do not adopt accidentally. We just happened to be in Kazakhstan. Didn't even though it was there before we got there, but it was there and it was this obscure city we just happened to walk into, this orphanage in this obscure city in Kazakhstan. Saw this child and he just happened to look at us and we just happened to walk out of the house with him and happened to get on a plane and come. No, it doesn't happen accidentally. It happens purposefully. Adoption always happens purposely. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, to, here's the purpose, purpose clause, to redeem those under the law. What was his purpose? His resolve, he determined to redeem us. He determined to redeem us. Take a flip over just a page or two in your Bible to the right to Ephesians chapter 1. I want to read Ephesians 1, 3, 4, and 5. And I, this is one of those passages, I, I want to encourage you just to let every single one of these words soak in and think about what it is saying, what the Bible is saying here. Listen to this. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Listen to verse 4. For he chose us. Chose us. In him, before the creation of the world. Is there an amen resounding in anybody's heart when you hear that? He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. Now, we like to debate that. Let's not debate. Let's delight in that. The God of the universe, before the creation of the world, set his affections on you. And he determined to adopt you as his child. He determined to redeem us. Now, we've got to be careful here, especially as we're using this contemporary illustration of adoption. 
and process contemporary adoptions because I think we have oftentimes a, an over-glamorized picture of adoption. Sweet, precious children around the world, innocent children just waiting to be adopted. Sweet and precious are definitely there. Innocent, not always the case. The reality is, adoption is not an easy process, and anybody who's been in, through that process knows that there are all kinds of difficulties that go with that, even greater in the New Testament. Because you get to Ephesians chapter 2, and the same people that are talked about as being adopted in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians chapter 2 are described as being objects of the wrath of God because they are so immersed and following the ruler of this world and gratifying the desires of their sinful nature. They have chosen. They're not, we are not described as orphans who are without a father. We are described as orphans who have rejected our father, who have said we don't want him. Everything in us, everything in us is turned against him. We are not Ideal prospects for adoption. Russ Moore teaches at Southern Seminary, also an adoptive parent, and he's written about adoption. I want you to listen to one section that he writes that I think sums this up well. He writes, imagine for a moment that you're adopting a child. As you meet with a social worker in the last stage of the process, you're told This 12-year-old has been in and out of psychotherapy since he was three. He persists in burning things and attempting repeatedly to skin animals alive. He acts out sexually, the social worker says, although she doesn't really fill you in on what that means. She continues with a little family history. This boy's father, grandfather, great-grandfather, and great-great-grandfather all had histories of violence, ranging from spousal abuse to serial murder. Each of them ended their own lives. Think for a minute, would you want this child? If you did adopt him, wouldn't you watch nervously as he played with your other children? Would you watch him nervously as he looks at the knife on the kitchen table? Would you leave the room as he watched a movie on TV with your daughter with the lights out? Then he writes, he's you and he's me. And that's what the gospel is telling us. Praise God that though there was nothing in us to draw us to him, even still, he determined to redeem us. He determined to pay the price for us. Lest you think, exaggerating the case, it's not that bad. Look at the cross. This is no minor offense Jesus is covering for. He determined to redeem us, and praise God, he died to rescue us. Praise God for his resolve in our lives. Against our resistance, his resolve. Caleb, two and a half years old now, and his favorite question, you know what his favorite question is, he's a two and a half year old, what's his favorite question? Why? All the time. Why, why, why? We, we, we do this little thing where I'll look at him and I'll point at him and I'll be like, I love Caleb. And he'll start laughing and he'll point back at me and be like, I love daddy. And we'll kind of go back and forth and we'll just get louder and louder and louder and just start laughing. It's just, you know, one of those things. And uh, 
The other day, this week, we were doing that. I love Caleb, I love Daddy, and then we kind of laughing, and he kind of caught his breath from laughing, and he said, you love me, Daddy? I said, yeah, I love you, buddy. And he looked back at me, and he said, why? And I said, because you're my son. He said, why? <laughs> and I paused. You love me, Daddy? Why? Because you're my son. Why? Why is he my son? Why, out of all the children in the world, is this little guy that I'm playing with my son? I start tearing up, getting emotional. Caleb doesn't know what's going on. It's the last time he'll ask me why. Uh, <laughs> just like, just playing with his daddy. Now his daddy's weeping, and I just, <laughs> I look at him, and I said, because we came to get you, buddy. You know, we, we wanted you in our family. Can I remind you that the God of the universe looks upon your life, church, not the person beside you, in front of you, behind you. He looks upon your life and says, I love you. Why, God? Why would you love me? Because you're my son. Why, God? Why am I your son? Because I came to get you. I came for you, and I wanted you in my family. This is good. It's good to be a son and the family of God. This is adoption. There we go. All right. God sent his son so that we might have the position of sons. Here's the good news, though. It gets better. Here's where it gets really good. We think that's been really good, just like we thought justification was really good. You see how this builds. This is why we must be finished and done with I prayed a prayer when I was however many years old and I've moved on. No, it's not possible. It's blasphemy to call that Christianity because the gospel and salvation is just deeper and deeper and more beautiful and more beautiful the more we dive into it. Justification right before God the judge. Adoption declared to be in the position of sons. But that's not all. God sent his son so that we might receive the position of sons. And then, listen to this, then God sent his spirit that we might receive and enjoy the privileges of sonship. This is where you come to Galatians chapter 4, verse 6. Because you are sons, as if that's not enough, it says don't close the book and fall on your face and worship yet. Because you're sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts that we might cry before him, Abba, Father, God sent his spirit so we might experience the privileges of sonship. Think about it. Contemporary illustration. Caleb knows that I'm his father, that I'm his dad. Why? How does he know that? He doesn't know that because of what we did a little over two years ago to go get him. That's not what he thinks about. How does he know today that I'm his dad, that I'm his father? He knows because of the love I'm showing him today. The love that I'll show him when I get home this afternoon. When we get down and we start playing cars, 
or we run around the yard, or we go to Moe's this week, or we drive home singing songs, that's when he'll know that I'm his dad. He'll not be thinking about what happened a little two, two years ago. He'll be thinking about what's happening at that moment. Do you see this? In the same way, now don't miss it, his status as my son is based on what happened two years ago in Kazakhstan. But his life, his experience as my son is based on what's happening today. In the same way, so with God, your status, my status before God is based on what happened at that moment of justification when we were declared right before God. And yes, that's not that we move on from that. That is eternal. We are eternally right before God based on the righteousness of Christ. However, we know that we are sons not based on what happened years ago when that happened. We know that we're sons and he's our father based on the affection and love he is showering on us at every single moment. And the affection, the privileges of being a son that we enjoyed, not when we prayed a prayer, we enjoyed today, right now, and enjoy when we wake up, when we walk with him. This is life as a son of God. Privileges of sonship. He puts his spirit into our hearts. He penetrates our hearts with himself. Infiltrates our hearts with himself. Now, what are those privileges? Paul's talked about them even since the end of Galatians 3. First, because we've been adopted, we live with a new identity before God. A new identity before God. You go back to the end of Galatians 3, verse 26, 27, 28, 29, you'll see Christ all over these verses. And four different phrases are used to describe how Christ has enveloped us in his presence. Remember the Spirit, Spirit of Christ. He's put his spirit in our hearts. What does that mean? Well, listen to the way Paul describes it. Verse 26, you're all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. Christ Jesus for all of you. Here's the first one. All of you who were baptized into Christ. New identity before God. We are baptized into Christ. Our lives are immersed in Christ. When we worship in just a moment through baptism, we see a picture. We are identified with the death of Christ and the life of Christ. That's why baptism is so important. It's great. In the context here, Paul's talking about Judaizers and circumcision. He says that's not the identifying marker of the people of God. It's baptism. And he's not saying, he's not saying you need to be baptized in order to be saved. Having to undercut the whole picture of what he has developed to this point. Grace alone through faith alone and Christ alone. But he is saying our baptism into Christ is the picture the New Testament gives us of how our life is identified with him. Which is why on a side note I would encourage any follower of Christ in this room who has not been baptized to move toward that with great haste. Not in order to be saved. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But baptism is not an option for followers of Christ. It's a command. It's the picture that Scripture gives us of how our lives are united with Christ and with His church. Let me encourage you to move with great haste toward that. We're baptized into Christ. Second, we are clothed with Christ. Since you are baptized with Christ, you've clothed yourselves with Christ. It's great imagery there. He literally envelops us. We are united in Christ. Verse 28, he starts talking about ethnic or racial barriers, Jew or Greek. Talks about social barriers, slave or free. Talks about gender barriers, male or female. And Paul's not saying here, the Bible's not saying that once you come to faith in Christ, that all of these distinctions are just, just gone. You're not a male or a female anymore. You're not a slave or free anymore. You're not a Greek or a Jew anymore. But what he's saying is, what Scripture's teaching is, that these distinctions no longer divide us. That in Christ, we're all on the same plane. Not one better or worse 
based on this or that factor that you might try to bring to the table, which is exactly what the Judaizers were trying to do between the Jews and the Gentiles. He says, no, we're in Christ. This is in one verse, a beautiful summary of the church, of the reality that when you travel to India, for example, and you sit down there in India across the table from people who eat completely differently than you, who talk completely differently from you, who have different cultural customs, who have different political views, who from the world looking in would say there's not a lot of commonality there. And you sit down across the table from them and you have an immediate bond and an immediate joy in being together because you're both in who? You're both in Christ. This is a picture of the church. No preference hierarchy based on this factor or that factor. All of us desperately in need of grace and all of us finding it in one place, Christ. United in Christ and then finally, we each belong to Christ. Chapter three, verse 29, if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. Paul takes this picture of unity and he ties it with the Old Testament line. He reminds the church in Galatia, he reminds us, church of Brook Hills, you're gathered together in this room at this moment. It's not just about unity here. Well, that's part of it. But it's about unity with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. They're in the line too. And Joseph and Moses and Joshua and Samuel and David and Solomon and Isaiah and Jeremiah. And we're all, we're all together and belonging to one who is Christ. We have a new identity before God, sons of God. But it gets better. Not only are we, do we have a new identity before God, but because we've been adopted, we enjoy intimacy with God. We enjoy intimacy with God. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father. This is a picture. Now, we have to be careful. Sometimes I've heard preachers talk about this word Abba and say, well, it's like daddy. And the, the picture, it's almost over-sentimentalized to get this picture of like baby talk. And that's not the way scripture talks about this word. This is, this is the title for God. It's Jesus groaning in the garden, Abba. It is what we cry out when we literally groan, Romans 8 talks about crying out to him. And here's the picture. It's not a picture about infancy more than, as much as it is about intimacy. And I wanna, I wanna, I'm, I'm gonna show you this or tell you this, what you got in your notes, and I wanna explain it to you. We were once held captive by his law. This is what Paul is showing us here. We were once held captive by his law. This is what Galatians 3, 22 said, we're a prisoner of sin. Galatians 3, 23, we were held prisoners by the law, locked up. We were held captive by the law. Why? Remember we talked about this last week, because the law condemns us before God. The law reveals our sin before God. So we're held captive by the law. That's why he says we once were slaves, but now we're a son. And the difference is we were once held captive by the law. Now we are captivated by his love. Let me illustrate this. I wish we had time to, to turn here, but we just, we just don't have time to do it this morning. Exodus chapter 19, write this down, Exodus 19. You go back and you see when God gave the law to his people. Anybody remember Mount Sinai? And God tells Moses, tell the people, don't get anywhere near the mountain. And what happens is this 
This cloud of smoke hovers over the mountain. And the mountain starts to tremble. The people are trembling. Now the mountain is trembling. When a mountain starts trembling, you start trembling. Something's going on here. And it's the scene of God in a consuming fire is the picture. Giving his law, to, he's about to give his law, Exodus chapter 20 is where we see the Ten Commandments, about to give his law to his people. And one man, Moses, is able to go up and meet with God and God says, tell everybody else to stay away. Why? Because the law condemns man and his sin. You don't want to get near God and all of his glory when the law is revealing your sin. And so everybody stays away. It's this awe, it's this dread, sense of fear even. People are frightened, trembling. It's Exodus 19 when the law is given. Take that picture and bring it into the New Testament and think about what the contrast is here. Once we are set free from the law, not only do we have to approach God, do we not have to approach God with fear or trembling because we're afraid to even be in his presence, now we approach God with confidence, with the confidence of a spirit in us that cries out, Daddy, Father, Abba. This radically changes the way we understand prayer. I hope this will make us think twice before we bow our heads before a meal this afternoon. To realize that the privilege you and I have at that moment at a dinner table to bow before God and approach his throne with confidence is a privilege that was reserved for only a few in the Old Testament and even reserved to a certain extent for them that you and I have the privilege of walking in on a daily basis. As, as children who are able to cry out, Abba, Father, all throughout the New Testament, that, even this title for God, the way it is used, it's a, it's a heart cry. The picture I would use is it's Caleb when he is frightened and he grabs onto my neck and he's looking at something that scares him and he grabs onto my neck and he's crying out, Daddy, yes, that's it. It's, ladies and gentlemen, it's when you receive the news that you never could have imagined. It's when the diagnosis comes that you never could have fathomed hearing. It's when the circumstances take place that you never could have in your wildest dreams dreaded happening and it happens and you don't know what to do and you don't know where to turn and in your spirit you cry out, Abba, Father. And you realize that you have a father, a dad who cares about you and who is with you and who holds you and who walks with you. This is the picture that's being displayed here. Not that of a servant, but a son. Not a slave, but a son. John Wesley, for years, was a theological student and scholar, ordained clergy, served, volunteered. He would go into prisons, serving, helping prisoners. He would take food to children in slums. He fasted, prayed, studied the Bible incessantly, studied the Bible all the time, worshiped consistently, even went as a missionary from England to Georgia. He came back from Georgia after serving as a missionary there. And when he gets back, this is what he wrote, wrote what he writes. He says, I who went to America to convert others came to the point where I realized I myself was never converted to God. Is it possible to do all those things? To read, study, pray, and fast, and worship, 
serve and go as a missionary and have never been converted? I want you to listen to what he describes. After his conversion experience, he looks back on that time before he was converted, and this is what he writes. It is one poignant statement. He's talking about his time before his conversion. He said, then I had the faith of a servant. but not the faith of a son that I have now. He said, I had the faith of a servant, not the faith of a son. Let me ask you a question. What kind of faith do you have? Out of a servant, trying to check off the boxes and get things right in your life so that you will have favor with God and doing all of these things. Or do you have the faith of a son who knows that there's nothing you could do to please find favor with this master, but this master has not called you a servant. He has called you a son, and he has given you life by grace through faith in his son. That's the picture that's being described here in Galatians chapter 4. It really comes down, to put it another way, do you have intimacy with God. Every child, every man, woman in this room, don't let that question deflect off of you because you, you teach or you lead or you have this position or you do this or that. Do you have intimacy with God? This is the privilege of sonship. And I wonder how many people in church as a whole, institutionally, even in the context of this room, who are living as servants day in and day out when God has called us sons. Intimacy with God. Not to go to church, not to read, pray, to do this. Do you have intimacy with God? Because we've been adopted, we have a new identity before God, we enjoy intimacy with God, and we are guaranteed an inheritance from God. You are no longer a slave, but a son, and since you are a son, God has also made you an heir. It gets even better. It gets even better. Not only are you a son now, but you're a son forever. We have an eternal father, an eternal father. Some say that adopted children have a lot of struggle with identity about whose they are, where they belong. I think the reality is all of us have that kind of struggle with an identity. Whose we are and where do we belong? And the gospel gives us a supreme answer in saying you belong to God the Father, you are his son, and not just his son for a little while, hoping that he won't turn you away on that last day. You are his son forever. We have an eternal father with an eternal family. We have an eternal family. Romans 8 says we're heirs with God and co-heirs with Christ. 
Scripture talks about how Jesus is our elder brother, not in a cultic way, not in a way that minimizes his divinity like some cults do, but an elder brother in that all that belongs to him as son belongs to us, John 14 through 16. Let that soak in. All that belongs to him belongs to you and me because we are a part of this family. Now, this is good news and bad news because, well, it's bad news because the world hated him. And the world persecuted him, and the world crucified him. This is why we go into passages like we looked at in that radical series, and we realize identification with him may cost us, not only may, should cost us everything. It may cost you your life to be a part of this family. But that's where Romans 8 just comes back and says, if we share in his sufferings, we know that one day we will share in his glory. And it's, it is a joy to share in sufferings now because we know that glory is coming. Together, we as a family enjoy all that belongs to Christ. We have an eternal father, an eternal family, and we have an eternal home. There is nobody that is coming to the Platt home to take Caleb anywhere. He is not in our home for a little while. He is in our home for good. And the reality that Scripture teaches is that when you have this father and you're in this family, you have an eternal home, and every day is one day closer to experiencing the joy of that home. That's a good way to live. It's good to be a son. So here's what I want to do. I want to invite these guys to come out here. And as we kind of, through Bibles and those notes, begin to think, okay, process all of that together. Here's what I want to do. I can't help but to think that across this room, there are, first of all, people who have never experienced intimacy with God. And the thought of intimacy with God is foreign to you, unfamiliar to you. And I want you to know that He has sent His Son so that you might receive the position of sons. And by His Spirit, even now, as we've been studying this Word, Spirit has been drawing many of you for the first time to Himself. And I want to encourage you to, to trust Him, to believe in Him for the first time, to say, yes, yes, I'm a son. I've been called into a family by grace through faith. You say, well, what do I have to do? You don't have to do anything to get married into this family. It's, it's by grace through faith. It's not based on what you do. It's based on what Christ has done for you. It's trust Him. Believe Him. At the same time, I can't help but to think that there are Christians around this room that somewhere along the way have lost sight of intimacy with God. And maybe it's been because of persistent sin. Maybe it's been because of just monotonous religious routine. I don't know what it is, but I want to encourage you. I want to give you some time to really let these truths soak in and ask God to restore intimacy and relationship with Him as Father. This is the most important. There's nothing more important in your life than intimacy with God. And I'm going to open up this area at the front if you would like to, when they begin singing, to kneel before God. If you'd like to just pray where you are, I want to invite you to consider, to contemplate what it means right where you're sitting to be a son of this God. And let these truths we've looked at in the words of this song 
soak over, just saturate you as you contemplate this glorious reality. Father, we pray that over the next few moments you would take these truths that we have listened to and we've heard from your word and you would bring them home to our hearts that we would realize the mammoth realities that are represented in these truths. Father, I pray that in this room at this moment, your spirit would call people to your family, into your family for the first time. And I pray men, women, maybe men and women who have served, who have done all kinds of things, but have yet to realize what it means to be a son. God, I pray that they would have a Wesley type experience today where you draw them into your family for the first time by grace through faith in Christ. Father, I pray for your people. We are people who are recovering Pharisees in so many different ways, and we lose sight of what it means to be a son with intimacy with you as a father. And so we pray, God, that across this room you would cleanse of sin, that you would restore intimacy. God, that you would renew intimacy with you all across this room in our hearts. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. They are going to sing over us. This area's front is open, or if you'd like to just stay where you are and continue to pray, I want to invite you to let these truths soak in over you as they sing them and as we contemplate what Galatians 3 and 4 is talking. Well, that's it for today's episode. I'm your host, Stacy Martin. For additional articles, podcasts, events, and more, visit Radical.net or follow us on Facebook and Instagram.